You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For September 20th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This episode marks the two-year anniversary of the Energy Transition Show. And after 51 episodes and 62 hours of programming, I'm frankly kind of amazed. Amazed that we've actually done that many episodes. Amazed that it's actually been two years. Amazed that our listening audience continues to grow nicely despite near-toxic levels of geekery. Amazed that there never seems to be any shortage of things to talk about. Indeed, I now have over 50 pages of notes on ideas for future episodes, largely thanks to you all. Amazed that we're actually succeeding with our subscription model, again, thanks to you all, where everyone said we would fail. Amazed at how the pace of energy transition has sped up globally in the short time this show has been around. And amazed at the way that the very idea of energy transition has gone from a boutique notion in certain energy circles to a full-blown revolution that's recognized and prioritized in policy goals. In so many ways, the general global dialogue about energy has noticeably advanced over the past two years. We're surfing an amazing moment in human evolution right now, and I try to keep this show as close to the edge of the curl as I can. It's been an exciting, exhausting, always fascinating ride, and I expect it will continue to be for a long time to come. And to those of you who have taken the whole 62-hour ride with us so far... I'm honored and humbled by your time and attention, and I promise to continue making this show as good as we possibly can. Also, you should probably have your heads examined. To celebrate this anniversary, I thought it'd be fun to give you a break from the usual deep dives, give me a break from the typical 20 to 40 hours of research I put into each show, and just have a little fun shooting the shit with a fellow energy analyst about a whole slew of topics that interest us in energy transition without trying to shoehorn it all into some unifying theme. So yeah, I only put in like six hours of research on this one. Totally slacking. And who better to have that conversation with than Jonathan Kumi, who you'll remember from episode 20. He's a research fellow at the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance at Stanford University and has interests in energy transition as broad as my own. So I thought he'd be the perfect guest for a freewheeling discussion about energy. Then in the news segment, we look at the prospect of a massive new CSP project in North Africa that would export power to Europe, more exciting news from the green bond sector, the latest wrinkle in the fight over Zex in Illinois, and a worrying trend brought on by CCAs in California. But first, let's hop on the omnibus with John Kumi. Normally, this part of the free, abridged version of the Energy Transition Show would give you 10 to 15 minutes of the interview segment to whet your appetite and persuade you to subscribe to the full show. This time, we're going to give you the postscript to the interview instead, because I wanted all listeners to hear it. That was John Kumi, a research fellow at the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance at Stanford University. Just reflecting on this interview, I'm struck by how often the theme of uncertainty came up. 
And actually, I'm struck by how much uncertainty has become a regular theme for this show in general. You'd think that a show that tries to promote energy and help people understand energy transition would try to be as confident and unambiguous as possible. But that's just not our reality. Energy transition is messy and the path forward is often unclear. And I have to acknowledge that maybe because I'm more of a scientist than a marketer at heart, and because I think it's important that we get it right, whatever it might turn out to be. Because there are consequences to getting it wrong. As I speak these words, Houston is just starting to mop up from Hurricane Harvey. The true extent of the damage is only beginning to be revealed, and there are still large areas underwater. And not just water. It's more like a toxic stew of unknown quantities of chemicals and E. coli. And for that matter, even the substances themselves that have leaked into the water that flooded Houston are unknown, because some of the companies that make them have refused to disclose what they were, claiming that it would be a national security risk to do so. What we do know is that Hurricane Harvey has gone down as the most extreme rain event in U.S. history, or the worst flood-producing storm, or however we'll ultimately decide to categorize it. Powered by warm water in the Gulf of Mexico, which is warmer because of climate change, Harvey dumped 30 to 50 inches of rain over Houston and Harris County during a relentless five-day deluge. But this was absolutely to be expected. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina and the flooding of New Orleans in 2005, an interdisciplinary team of scientists spent five years studying data on the causes and consequences of flooding in Texas and Florida. They published a book on it in 2011 titled Rising Waters. When the authors presented their evidence to the former head of the Harris County Flood Control District only last year, describing Houston as a sitting duck for the next big hurricane, the official dismissed the evidence, saying scientists, quote, have an agenda, and that, quote, their agenda to protect the environment overrides common sense. And Sam Brody, a marine scientist at Texas A&M, one of the authors of the report, proceeded to watch the water rise and force him out of his own home during Harvey. And as I speak these words, it seems the whole of the American West is on fire. Even here in Boulder today, we've got terrible air quality, but there aren't any major fires in Colorado. On the news last night, the local weathermen explained how we're getting an influx of smoke from wildfires in Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and probably California. Nationally, there are right now 50 large, uncontained fires across the West, according to the USDA Forest Service. Oh, and the Latuna fire is now thousands of acres in size and is the largest brush fire in Los Angeles history. And more than 1,000 people have been killed and millions displaced thanks to another climate-related calamity of flooding in India, Bangladesh, and Nepal. And how are we responding to all this? We have people like Nick Kristof, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the New York Times, writing coy op-eds asking why we recognize the reality of Hurricane Harvey, but then deny climate change. Well, Nick, I think you know the answer to that question. I think we all do. Look, if we are to get anywhere in addressing climate change, it's not going to be by pretending that we don't know what's going on here. The toxic waters are swirling around our feet, again, as they did during Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and Superstorm Sandy, and as they will again, with increasing severity and frequency. At some point, we have to put the ironic winks aside and just speak the plain truth. We are in a climate emergency. It's really serious and really dangerous. And if we don't do something, it's going to get worse. And the first thing that we need to do about it is energy transition. We are now in a position where the reins of power, 
from Harris County in Texas all the way up to the president, are in the hands of people who are fighting energy transition and lying to everyone about climate change on behalf of their friends in the fossil fuel industry. Not just denying it, but actively trying to destroy the scientific evidence of it, removing any mention of climate change and removing data that taxpayers paid for from government websites, trying to destroy policy tools like the social cost of carbon, laying off the scientists, including, by the way, our guest boss from the previous episode of this podcast, who, along with 17 others, just lost his job at the National Center for Atmospheric Research here in Boulder, thanks to budget cuts from the National Science Foundation. Because who needs climate modeling at a time like this, right? We have an EPA head who has actively fought every kind of climate policy for decades and who wants to gut his own agency. We have a Department of Energy head who once pledged to eliminate it, who is now doing all he can to support the coal and nuclear industries, and who has deep, long-standing ties with the oil and gas industry from his days as the governor of Texas. A man who just commissioned a report on the importance of baseload power, a transparently political move which was clearly designed to cast doubt on the reliability of renewables, although the final report turned out to be a bit of a dud and basically just rehashed what we already know because it turns out that facts are stubborn things. Indeed, a former Texas governor who told CBS News, quote, we can line up scientists on both sides of this, and, quote, this is not the time to be having this conversation. Everyone wants to run to the climate change debate, but that is very secondary at this particular time. Well, I wonder exactly when Secretary Perry thinks that it will be the time to actually have that conversation. And let's not forget that our Secretary of State spent his career at the biggest independent and most notorious oil and gas company on the planet. We simply don't have the luxury anymore of pretending that we don't have a serious problem here that we have to do something about. And we shouldn't pretend that our leaders are honest or well-intentioned or are interested in anything except protecting the wealth of themselves and their friends in the fossil fuel industry. We have to start coming to grips with the facts and actively seek energy transition with every single move we make. At the same time, and this is where it gets tricky, we have to acknowledge what we don't know. John is right that we should be alarmed about climate change, very alarmed. But at the same time, as we have seen from our many series on climate science, there's a great deal we don't know. We have a lot of models to show what the future could be like without climate action, and we can model how to get to certain levels of warming under energy supply portfolios that include technologies that don't exist commercially. But we don't know how much warming we might see under a successful energy transition. It may very well be possible that a successful energy transition can, in fact, limit warming to 2 degrees C, but our current models aren't designed to test that. We can tell that U.S. emissions have dropped since 2005, but no one can tell us exactly why. We know that there are structural changes going on in the U.S. economy that are reducing our energy use per capita, but we can't really say what they are with any precision. We don't really have good data on how many people gave up their cars and long commutes for walkable lifestyles in the inner cities. We can't tell how much incremental change in emissions there might be from, for example, people modestly shifting their diets just a little bit away from meat and a little bit toward vegetables. We can't actually model how much reduction in U.S. electricity consumption we're currently experiencing because people are switching the electronics and light bulbs to more energy efficient ones. We just don't know. We suspect that we'll need a large amount of energy storage capacity as we move into a more renewably powered future, but no one knows how much or what kind of storage or who will own it, or how it might be used. We really have no idea right now. Our energy system could evolve any number of ways over the coming decades. We know that we need to transition our energy regime, but we don't know exactly what a system with 100% renewable supply might look like. 
There is uncertainty everywhere you look in energy transition and climate science. But that doesn't mean that we can afford an action. We can't. And it doesn't mean that we have to start spending vast amounts of money on unproven solutions like CCS or next generation nuclear. What it does mean is that we should be taking action now in every way, even in small incremental ways, both personally and as a society. One double-paned window retrofit at a time, one meatless meal at a time, one EV at a time, one rooftop solar system at a time, one wind farm at a time, one residential battery system at a time. It all adds up and it all saves real money. It all works right now and none of it requires any particular prescience. And it means one more thing, a big dose of humility is in order. If we have no idea what kind of trouble we're really heading into, and we really have no idea what the right solution set is, and we don't have leaders who can acknowledge facts, even when they're plainly evident, and we're surrounded by people who are lying to us and just looking out for their own personal wealth, well, we should be treading very carefully indeed, boldly, but carefully. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are usually at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And I want to welcome the students and educators out there who have been writing to inquire about our educational discounts. Nothing could make me happier than knowing that this show is reaching ears that are eager to hear it at a price they can afford, whatever their circumstances. Because although we do need to pay our bills and can't afford to just give the show away, and although I refuse to allow the corrupting influence of commercialism to creep into it, the whole point of this enterprise is to make all of us smarter, better informed, and more effective in our respective efforts to tackle the threat of climate change and try to build a better future. So if you're a student or an educator who is passionate about energy transition but just a little short on funds, shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So please join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A new project called Tunur hopes to succeed where the Desert Tech Initiative failed. A consortium of clean energy developers has applied to build a massive concentrating solar power plant, variously reported as 2.5 gigawatts and 4.5 gigawatts in size, in the Sahara Desert of southwest Tunisia. 
At the 4.5 gigawatt size, the plant would reportedly generate enough electricity to power 5 million homes and occupy 25,000 hectares. The project would also include three HVDC submarine transmission lines that would export the power across the Mediterranean Sea to Malta, Italy, and France. The consortium does not appear to have announced a price tag for the total project, but one news report says an initial 250 megawatt phase would cost 1.6 billion euro. If that were to scale linearly, the 4.5 gigawatt project would come in at roughly 29 billion euro. Item 2. The World Bank's International Finance Corp. and Amundi SA, a European asset manager, intend to raise $2 billion and create the world's largest green bond fund dedicated to emerging markets. Regular listeners... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.